0: Welcome to the Air Force Doctrine Podcast. This special episode is a time edited version of an MGM workshop where we brought in our top three essay writers from our recent Inspiring Doctrinal Innovation Essay Contest. On this episode, these three highly talented airmen talk about their winning papers and answer questions on the implications of the changing character of war. Please join us as we explore the future of Air Force Doctrine. Thanks, Joyce. Yes, I'm uh, Major Nicholas Underwood. I work in the Doctrine Outreach at the LeMay Center here where our responsibility is to Get doctrine out there, help to, to push it out, get people interested in it, debating it. And that's exactly what our, our essay contestants did, is they, they dissected a doctrine, they looked at the changing character of war, and they offered some, in many cases, some very groundbreaking ideas, especially our top three. And it was very difficult. There was quite a bit of infighting among both scholars and uh, what we call doctrinators to figure out the top three. so the the difference between number one and number three is 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 almost imperceivable. So we'll announce the winners here. So in first place, we had Major James Schmidt. In the second place was Lieutenant Colonel Abby Barger. and then uh, third place was Miss Aaron Greiner. So thank you guys for competing. What I'd like to do is turn it over to them. We'll start with Aaron, then go to Abby and then to James and have them each give you two or three minutes of the big revelations, the big arguing points from their paper. So turn it over to you, Aaron, if you don't mind.
1: Morning, everyone. My name is Erin Grenier, Grenier, Grenier. I'll take any variation. I'm a French Canadian who grew up in Wisconsin, so no one could pronounce my name properly. So I'm, I'm an intelligence analyst. I'm an Air Force civilian. I'm currently at NORAD and NORTHCOM in the wargaming division. I am the red cell lead. I am the only intel analyst in the J7, so I'm glad to have this venue as a way to Uh, have people listen to my musings. I'm a Russia analyst by trade and I primarily have focused on Russian information confrontation and foreign policy. I'm currently working on a master's in international relations and focus on nuclear deterrence at Harvard University. So my paper was titled Modernizing Information Operations Doctrine to Meet New National Security Needs. This primarily uh, stemmed from some of my observations in wargaming specifically, in conjunction with some long-term concerns about the future of warfighting and if the U.S. is truly prepared for the fight ahead. In these war games at both the COCOM and national level, um, I noticed that many senior policymakers and military officials focused heavily on the shiny objects, the high-tech developments, but often would ignore some of the more squishy things like information operations. And as a red cell lead, it's my job to test and stress uh, U.S. strategy and doctrine. And I noticed that there is a big deficiency with understanding the effect that adversary information operations can have primarily on civil society. Um, And that's really where my, my paper led to. And so some of the key findings that I talk about in my paper is... Um, Our adversaries are unable to match our national security spending, but they're playing much smarter than we are. Um, They understand that democracy is our most prized possession, but they've also found a way to weaponize it against us. This is typically done by attempts to degrade cohesiveness of civil society through political lines. We often put emphasis on high tech capabilities, but forget that human beings are involved and they're fallible. And as it currently stands humans are still making decisions until AI comes around um, and are very vulnerable to influence. Um, And this can lead to political paralysis in a conflict scenario. In doctrine, as it currently stands, there's a heavy focus on defining concepts, um, but much to be desired on specific observations and how to actually achieve the effects we want. Lastly, a desperate need to collaborate and streamline our strategy across the U.S. government and also allies and partners. It's important that we don't have disjointed and ad hoc attempts at combating adversary attempts in the information space and really have these cross-cutting teams, working groups to get to the problems we're trying to achieve. And just real quick, I'll go over some of my general recommendations. They're not new. Um, but more of a desperate cry for newer generation of defense officers to our senior policymakers that we need to focus on deterrence by denial and cost. We need to develop capabilities and TTPs that will actually deny the efforts, but also have policies and strategies that will impose a severe cost to our adversaries, right, to make them not want to do it in the first place. As I kind of mentioned before, Uh, We need to break down the walls of government bureaucracy. We just don't stand a chance in a conflict with speed and cohesive strategy if we can't find a way to be more cross-cutting. And then lastly, this is more of an existential thing and maybe not so Air uh, Force-centric, but the U.S. government really needs to focus on developing strong leaders. And I think it's important to build trust in society that there's good leaders that civil society um, can look up to and actually trust. So I hope I didn't go over my time. I want to pass it on to the other fellow winners. Thank you.
0: Fascinating essay. It's coming up in Wild Yonder along with the rest of the essays. Uh, we'll get to some questions later. Uh, Abby, uh, if you're ready, we'll go next.
2: Awesome. Thanks, Nick. I am Abby Barger. I'm currently the operations officer at 18th Special Operations Test and Evaluation Squadron. I work in AFSC, Special Operations Command. And the mission of our unit is operational tests. So what we do is we provide fielding recommendations to the warfighter for capabilities that are about to be procured for them. It gives me a lot of time to think about near future capabilities. And I'll echo what Aaron said about us not focusing enough on some of the squishier things, right? I have an entire organization that I help manage that helps us field software and hardware capabilities. But equally important to our warfighter is the ideas about how to use them, how to think more creatively and differently about how to employ them in a future operating environment. It's important in our tactical level doctrine and also in our operational level doctrine. So I've got a real passion for studying and thinking about doctrine. I've written quite a bit about it. I focus a lot on joint doctrine and the history and evolution of doctrinal thought. My specialty is irregular warfare. And the thesis of my paper is that irregular warfare is a threat in strategic competition. It's not just this thing that we did for the last 20 years that we will never do again and that is not related to our new threats. That's because the definition of irregular warfare is about a strategic end state, right? It is to gain and maintain control and influence over a population. We can see in our 2022 NDS that we believe that Russia and China are seeking to influence our population. Again, echoing what Aaron has said about the ways they're seeking to influence us, right? So we think irregular warfare is going to be a threat. We see influence operations as an ongoing issue in like the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Yet our doctrine doesn't really treat it as a strategic end state. It treats it as a collection of tactics, counterinsurgency, irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, counterterrorism, tactical things that we've been doing and that maybe the part of the force that specializes in that is the only part of the force that really thinks doc- about the doctrine of the regular warfare. So the thesis of my essay is that this matters and it matters for the whole joint force. And we should think about it more comprehensively and strategically and embedded across our joint doctrine so that we can get everybody thinking innovatively about how better to use the things we're procuring for them in your creative ways that's it in a nutshell is that sufficient
0: absolutely both timely and very fascinating for your paper taking iw and making this a very large umbrella definitely a huge focus uh, within the j7 right now but i think your paper does a great job of outlining hey we still have to go farther this is a much bigger uh, item and it's difficult to get our arms around the squishy stuff we absolutely have to and so uh, a very well written paper and a very timely one as well thank you abby james we'll go over to you
3: awesome thanks very much nick Uh, and really thanks to everybody here i am super excited to read the other papers just based on even that short introduction from each of them they sound really awesome and i'm looking forward to it Uh, so i am currently a staff officer on the headquarters air force staff just got back from uh, Al Yadid, which is actually the the genesis of this paper So while I was out there, I had a chance to work on the Air Force's central planning staff, and what I saw a couple of times was we would either try to field new capabilities or we would try to use aircraft in different ways. And in fact, one of the capabilities that we were trying to field, coincidentally enough, was actually from Colonel Barger's squadron uh, that drove some of these doctrinal discussions. But what we saw was even though you had great people, you had uh, awesome, motivated Americans trying to use things in new and innovative ways. Sometimes the doctor just hadn't caught up. Uh, and one of the areas where we saw that most frequently was if you were trying to use an aircraft that had been tagged for a specific mission set in a different or a different mission set or a new, not new or novel way, that was what tended to cause the most friction. Uh, so that was kind of the ideas that I had clunking around in my mind as I came back home. Uh, and then once I got back here and got back into a little bit of the literature for what was changing in the air force itself, I started to see that that problem was probably going to become more critical as we fielded the new capabilities. So what does that look like specifically as we project forward? Well, we see a lot of the new aircraft that we have coming online and a lot of the new systems that we have coming online are really inherently multi-role. So we've heard General Alvin talk about the B-21 in ways that we don't traditionally think about people talking about bombers, right? Like maybe we can use this bomber uh, in intelligence roles. And similarly, we see a lot of cool projects out of places like the Air Force Research Laboratory doing things like putting munitions on a pallet and then dropping them out of a mobility aircraft like a C-17 or a C-130. And finally, we see even traditional tanker aircraft like KC-135s and uh, uh, KC-47s as they come online, putting Starlink panels on the top of their aircraft and then becoming a comms relay. Well, these are all fantastic capabilities, but all I could think back to was my time deployed and the friction that's gonna come with actually trying to use these capabilities in real time if we don't have the doctrine, the training and the experience to support that. So that's what drove uh, drove the paper for me. To get a little bit more into the specifics, uh, for those that haven't had the joy of working in the air Operations center, when the pool is closed, uh, there's a couple of different processes that work for, uh, these different types of aircraft that are out there. And really they're all stovepiped into a couple of different sections here. So the ISR aircraft, the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance aircraft run through a process called the joint collections management board, which I think we should change, but I don't want to disparage because what that really looks like is a lot of really awesome experts coming together. Giving their best expert opinions and then prioritizing how we're going to focus our ISR in the course of operational campaigning. So it's a great process. It's just one that's probably going to have to change. Similarly, we have uh, all of our logistics folks come together in a joint logistics management board. And then when we talk about strike aircraft, typically they're put together into a joint, uh, tar- joint prioritized targeting list uh, as the eventual product that dictates how those are used. So these are all great processes, but the problem is that they work independently. So if I wanna take an ISR aircraft that was prioritized via the Joint Collection Management Board and use it to strike a target, there is no mechanism as it stands right now past just working individually with different officers to make that happen. Well, that can work work on a case-by-case basis, but as we field multi-role aircraft, that system is gonna break down. So what I recommend uh, is that we move from these individual mission-specific planning boards and instead focus on a joint effects prioritization. So at the AOC, at the joint level, how do we focus on what effects do we want? And then once we understand those effects, prioritize those effects, how do we focus on the key enablers for those? So if I want to prevent an adversary, if I want to deny an adversary a goal in order to affect deterrence by denial, what are the key kinetic effects I need? What are the intelligence, logistics, and communications enablers behind those effects, and then how do I package those all together in a way that can be clear, concise, and then repeatable in, in an environment where I might not have perfect communications or I'm trying to do ACE or other things that kind of break up our, our normal processes. Uh, so I'll kind of leave it at that, but I think that's that's the gist of the paper that I was trying to get out there.
0: Thanks, James. Yes, I, I found the paper absolutely fascinating. I, I know our readers will too. There's a lot happening in the uh, AOC discussion, how Air Force does operations these days. Uh, with everything from distributed control to mission command. There's this idea that uh, getting all that information out or getting the, the capability and the authorities distributed out, and this ability to integrate is going to be uh, that much higher priority. So I certainly appreciate that. What I'd like to do at this point is I'll, I have a question for each one of you to kind of kick us off, then we'll reach out to the audience and pull some uh, questions from the audience. Uh, and then I have a final question for the for the panel. So I'd like to start, Abby. As you mentioned, the regular warfare is often associated with counterinsurgency and unconventional warfare. But with the emphasis lately on great power competition or strategic competition, how should you think we should think of IW when we look ahead to threats and conflicts with China and Russia? And I'm really thinking uh, one of the early uh, joint notes uh, established a competition continuum. And so now we're not looking at such a hard armed conflict versus just competition. So as you look across that, how do you think IW applies?
2: So I'll take a stab at that. I think that the competition continuum is a really good framework for thinking about this, but we really like to polarize things in our heads, right? It makes things easy to think of either or, right? We're gonna have irregular warfare or traditional warfare. We're gonna be at one end of the competition continuum versus the other. But that's not actually how the real world works, right? Like, We can be operating simultaneously across the entire competition continuum in different ways. And so it's really hard to conceptualize and to write it clearly into doctrine, right? Because it's just this massively complex problem. But that is why it is so important to embed this thinking in your idea of what is the end state you're trying to achieve? Like, what is our goal? And how do each one of us working through our own individual capabilities and understandings advance that end state collectively? Thinking about it in, in great power competition, I don't see it as a dichotomy, right? I think that in future conflicts, so the, the paradigm of traditional warfare is that the government uses the military on behalf of its citizenry to go prosecute an end state. The theory behind irregular warfare is that we're directly engaging populations, right? Our own population and, and other populations. And this is where it starts to get really squishy hard and hard to define, right? Because would it be appropriate for our government to go conduct propaganda operations, right? Is that a doctrinally appropriate mission for our military, I, right? We're going to have a, a spirited debate about that. But the one thing that we probably would all agree on is that if we see this as a threat, we would want to defend against it, right? And I'd like to echo something that Aaron said that really like resonated with me was the idea of trust in our institutions and, and a way to engender that. And so I think that's a, a springboard we could use that we could all agree on that defending against a regular worker is certainly going to be very important in our future conflicts. And so I don't think that our doctrine is addressing these things. And so my recommendation is that we need to think more holistically about it and more creatively. I guess I'll leave it there
0: unless you have follow on. <laughs> no, that's that that's fantastic. It's it's not an easy answer. If it was, it'd probably already be in doctrine. Um, but uh I I, I like the idea. Hey, we just have to shift thinking, start thinking holistically. But you kind of naturally segued segwayed right into Aaron talking about the trust. And Aaron, you started talking about that a little bit earlier. My, my question is just about that. Is the as information is really, we see from Ukraine and Russia and 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 long before that, that information really has become a weapon. And as the if the the DOD at large starts using information as a weapon, we there's a danger of an eroded trust. And you mentioned a little bit about building smart leaders. So I just want to give you an opportunity maybe to build on your earlier thought.
1: Yeah, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with what's known as the grass mob doctrine, which I think was really the springboard for the U.S. to really understand how our adversaries view information confrontation, information warfare, depending on what school you come from. And I think that it's important that we view this from the red perspective when we start developing our strategies and our doctrine is understanding what the adversaries are seeking to achieve um, and then building around that. As far as information is a weapon, it absolutely is a weapon. In fact, some of our adversaries believe that non-military means of achieving political strategic goals has grown and is actually in some ways uh, more effective than weapons themselves. So, yeah, when it comes to <laughs> trust, that's a really that's a really tricky one. I think our country is experiencing a very strange stage of not having trust in its government, and I think we see that from both sides of the aisle. As I mentioned, my paper, Rand did some interesting study on the phenomenon of truth decay, which leads to little trust in the government. Um, So how do we address this? Um, I think at a doctrinal level, I think there's an opportunity for the military to include civil society more making the population more uh, smart on adversary techniques with social media, with our freedom of press, which adversaries maneuver through. But yeah, I think what what really matters at the end of the day are strong leaders the population believes in and wants to follow and trust and don't feel like they're being deceived. Um, And that's a little bit harder to achieve. And it's certainly not something that's a doctrinal problem, though, The U.S. government has an opportunity to put a premium on training good leaders and smart leaders that the population can believe in. Again, that's not so much an Air Force doctrine problem, but something to consider um, as we go through the ranks. Sorry, that probably wasn't the best answer. It's a little existential and squishy, but yeah. Thank you.
0: No, certainly there there is a need for DOD members to be both politically minded to understand the social issues. And we've seen that evolve over the years, but uh, it will continue to be important and it needs to be part of our leadership development. I I think that's a very valuable point. Thank you, Aaron. James, I'd like to transfer to you here. I I really want to get into AOC 2.0 here as you've looked at that. How should the AOC change to accommodate less stovepipes, especially in executing agile combat employment? distributed control, and mission command?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm sure uh, you guys would agree from your work that it's pretty easy to cover in two minutes, just to, I think everything there. Um, but what I'd say is uh, sometimes when there's a really a big sea change for an organization, and I think that's what we're seeing for the AOC, the biggest priority when we look at reorganizing it is going back to its core mission. And to me, what that means for an Air Operations Center is in an era where we've gotten used to the Air Operations Center being able to dive into tactical details and really do a lot of tactical planning, maybe it's time to back out and focus on a core mission of translating strategic objectives into prioritized operational objectives. And I think that's the key mission that an Air Operations Center is able to do as it executes and as it executes uh, distributed command. So what does that that look like in, in practice? I think in my mind, we take strategic objectives that are passed down by a combat commander we prioritize those into specific events that we want to see in specific geographic areas at specific times and then we pass that intent out to distributed teams that are going to do the planning on their own so that might look like wings that might look like cyber mission teams that you have out there that might look like army groups that we have working for the aoc in in certain roles but either way uh, it means that we need to accept the risk of letting tactical leaders be tactical leaders operating with good essay of what's happening around them, but ultimately without specific direction from leadership coming from the AOC. And I think with that mentality in mind, a lot of the other pieces, as we get into the the nitty gritty of doctrine of how the AOC executes those processes are going to just logically make sense as we refocus on translating strategic objectives into prioritized operations, and then relying on, honestly, really great airmen that we have out there in the field, really great uh, airmen, soldiers, sailors, everybody that we have out there in the field, going out there and doing what they've always done making great things happen with limited resources. Absolutely. Thanks, James
0: Right, Very easy to answer in two minutes. So uh, there's a lot to cover there, but I, I think you did a great job. I appreciate it. Before we go to kind of the open, uh... Question for our panel here, uh, Aaron. There, we did have a question come in from the chat. It asked if you used any case studies from Ukraine or the Pacific in order to to support your points for the audience. We limited their total word count, so we didn't give them an opportunity to really deep dive into a lot of the case studies. So I'll kind of uh, alibi for for Aaron there, but you may have some specific. Uh, inspiration that came from either either the Ukraine or the Pacific area. So I want to throw it out to you if there's anything uh, you want to share from that.
1: Yes, thank you for um, preempting that answer. But it's it's a great question, right? I think when it comes to influence operations, there is some, I would say that the government, um, and I'm saying government because it's national security overall, not just DoD, often have a misperception of successfulness of information operations. So there's two parts of it, right? There's the level of effort or um, the the kind of things that an adversary is doing. And then there's a second half of that, which is vulnerability to those efforts. Um, And I think sometimes we, the collective, we forget about that vulnerability part, right? So the US population has some political divides that are leveraged, right? So that's that's a vulnerability we have, but that may not exist in other countries. Um, so these case studies, I think, are very different across the board. There isn't just a one size fits all of what the PRC or Russia is doing. It's very tailored to the unique wedges in the respective societies in these countries. But of course, it's, it's all data. It's all data from Ukraine, what China's doing in Africa, Right? They're different, but we learn from each case study of what their tools are and how they leverage it depending on those unique vulnerabilities. Um, so, no, I did not go into that, but perhaps I'll consider that for my thesis coming up uh, in the next year.
0: Thank you, Aaron. For the panel, I'd like to throw this out to everybody. This particular essay looked at the changing character of war, and we said, look out 10 years and talk about how our doctrine needs to change. Uh, so, as you looked at uh, the changing character of war, one of the things that the podcast that preempted this uh, with John Arquilla, he talked about his constant t- trends and shocks. And he asked everybody to kind of go out and say, what are some shocks that we're not thinking of? What are some things that are going to upset us, the proverbial black swans that we're not thinking about? And so he asked all the audience to try to come up with one. So I'll throw that out to you guys. We'll start with Aaron. What was a what was shock that you think we're not expecting?
1: I would say, I think the laws of war or the actual rules of war are going to change in a way that we're not used to. I think that we're going to see conflict moving much more out of the military realm and much more into the other parts of dime. Um, I think we can expect to see more warfare and the economic side of things, of course, and the information side of things. I think that that's something that we're seeing now, but will be used much more heavily in the
0: future. A difficult question to answer. Uh, what are we not thinking of? Uh, and then I'm going to ask you to think about it. Uh, I'm going to throw uh, that hard question to, to Abby. What are, the, uh, what are the shocks that we need to be watching for?
2: Oh, my goodness. That's an unanswerable question, right? I'll offer this to you. We don't like being surprised. We are not good at being surprised. We don't like it. We want certainties and we are used to a world in which we get to drive the world order. We like the current rules-based world order and we want to preserve it. And I think that James hit on a little bit in his doctrine. We're really stovepiped into what we're good at, and we like to have clear direction about how we're going to do it. And I would offer to you that doctrine is always evolving and always changing, right? We we write the doctrine and codify our lessons from the last war that we had, right? Our first joint doctrine codified the lessons of Vietnam, and then prepared us to go into Desert Storm. And then we rewrote our doctrine for counterinsurgency and COIN. And now we're rewriting our doctrine to try to take what we learned in the past and apply it to an uncertain future. But it's not so much the static. Here's Here's the checklist, here's the menu, here's the process, follow it. It's an ongoing learning. The process of us having this discussion here and us engaging with the forest as we constantly rewrite our doctrine and think about it more creatively and innovatively, that, that is how we get through the future and how we sort of inoculate ourselves against surprise. We get prepared and used to thinking about things that make us uncomfortable and that we don't have clear, easy answers for. And we go through the intellectual rigor of, of thinking about it and preparing for it so that when you have a surprise, which you won't have thought about because it will be a surprise, it won't be surprising to be surprised, right? You will have intellectually prepared yourself to be ready to do that. Again, a very squishy answer, but I think that's the best I've got for you. I'll kick it over. I'd love to hear what James has to say.
3: Yeah, so I'll, I'll build right off that last answer because I couldn't agree more, which is that when I thought about this this initial question, I do go back to that, uh, the podcast with Dr. Aquila, and he talked about two different types of surprise you could get after. And one is kind of a snap the chalk line. Everybody's surprised. It's a very sudden thing. And you're in a different paradigm. But the other one is what, a surprise that's been building over time. And you see it developing and developing. And at some point, it hits a critical inflection point, And then it becomes something new. And to me, that's the kind of shock to the system that I see developing, which is that for a long time now, we've seen a trend of requiring specialization for our uh, airmen that are out there in the field. So an example might be, if you were gonna fly back in World War I, you would get into an aircraft that was that was new, but the engine was something that you were familiar with if you had worked on a farm before. Most of the mechanics mechanics of that uh, aircraft, you were familiar with, if you had done any kind of work on a car before, and you just needed to get used to the specifics of flying that plane. Uh, when I went through my basic training to be an MQ-9 pilot, part of that very basic training was understanding how a satellite communicates with the earth and what specific wavelengths it's on, Uh, and that's before we get to the aircraft itself, which is made up of, you know, 80% computers, uh, that are all completely unfamiliar to somebody who's just coming in. So that's part of a a trend of specialization that we've seen. You need to be a specialist in your system. You need to be a specialist in your highly complex environment. But I think as we see a lot of. Platforms, not just aircraft becoming more multi-role and a lot of warfare in general, it's character becoming more joint and integrated. I think we'll see a hard turn in the other direction where we need more generalized knowledge. So, uh. All of these specialists that we have out there right now are going to need to become a little bit more generalist uh, at the cost potentially of knowing less about the specific systems that they operate, but knowing more about how they operate with other systems that are out there. So when we talk about being comfortable with change, to me, that's the crux of being comfortable with change is that we have uh, not just specialists that know their systems, but generalists that understand how they work in the larger picture around them. Uh, and then i'm going to slightly cheat here and give another answer too, just in case that shock doesn't manifest so i think the other shock that we would uh, that i think we should be prepared for is what happens when shocks don't happen so i think there are times when we anticipate meaningful change so we anticipate that ai autonomy is going to revolutionize the world we anticipate that we're going to be more collected connected via data links than ever before but sometimes though those just don't operationalize the way we expect it to and the the example that i like to go to because i know about four things in history Uh, is the Battle of Lissa. So this was back in the mid 19th century. uh, First time that we had seen in Europe, ironclads really fight each other. And it just so happened that at that point in time, ramming was the tactic that worked. So for the next 50 years in European navies, every armored ship that was built had a ram on its prow and no ironclad ever rammed another one in combat ever again. It was just that weird confluence that made us think that the revolution was coming in naval warfare. And then didn't quite manifest the way that we expected it to. So I think that's the other thing that we need to keep in mind. We have a whole lot of great things happening, but we also, I think, need to be prepared for the shock of no shocks, or the shock of this specific shock that we thought was coming, not manifesting the way that we thought it did.
0: That's fascinating, James. And I get the impression you know more of the two things in history, uh, by the way you talk. We do have one question here from Paps, and if uh, I could hold the panel for another five minutes. James, I think it's to you. Uh, your paper addresses new ways to approach air asset integration within the AOC. Could your recommendations also apply to integrating assets across multiple domains? How do we break down the stovepipes between functional components and a combatant command?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question, and the answer is in, in a, a completely unreserved yes. So I think I focused a little bit more on the air operations doctrine just because that was the focus of this uh, essay in particular. But I think at the joint level, that's exactly where we need to get after these prioritized effects, because frankly, the air component is not in a position where it can do anything by itself. The land component is not in a position where it can do anything by itself. And no component is in a position where it can do anything by itself. So the same way that we can't prioritize ISR aircraft as ISR only. We can't prioritize air-based effects as an air component problem only. We need to bring in the other components and we need to make sure that we're all operating on a joint prioritize effects list and uh, getting after those missions.
0: In conclusion here, I'd kind of like to give our essay writers some sort of uh, resolution and, and what their paper has done, at least here in the LeMay Center. We obviously have a, a limited uh, scope in terms of all of doctrine, and a lot of this crosses over into joint doctrine and quite a bit into policy as well. So, uh, uh, James, for your paper, one of the ideas inspired was for us to actually look at uh, how uh, command and control is discussed inside an operational doctrine. Uh, most of that re- resides down in the TTPs and the AOC. And so we're looking at what does it take to take our 330 doctrine, which discusses the command and control, and actually look at those processes and the integration and see if we can start to build at the operational level more robust doctrine to get after exactly what you're talking about. So we are taking the charge on that. We appreciate that. Abby, for yours, uh, we've rescinded uh, the Air Force's irregular warfare doctrine, just because we were finding ourselves out of sync with joint. And uh, the J7 is working very diligently to make that more robust, especially in the upcoming rewrite of JP1B1. And in the, this particular volume, the primary uh, AO on that actually resides here in the LeMay on behalf of the J7. And so he's, that doctrine uh, writer is read your paper and is um, taking that influence as he write, rewrites JP1 and interacts with uh, the J7. Obviously, like you identified, there's there's a lot there and it's hard to write that into doctrine, but uh, I personally put that in his hands and he was enthralled to read it and is taking that as he as he, he pushes he rewrites. Aaron, yours is, is much more complicated just because you do cross into the policy realm and that integrated piece. And so as we look at JDM 122, uh, which talks about campaigning and a lot of the integration that National Security Strategy talks about, uh, we've shared that within uh, those in LeMay here that deal in joint doctrine. So as these, these joint notes, uh, the cam- campaigning and all of those concepts are being developed and pushed into doctrine, they're aware of uh, some of your ideas, but it is very difficult just because there is so much policy in there. A lot of it is just educating our force to understand the larger picture. Additionally, we've we've started a mini-series podcast on our, our own doctrine uh, LeMay Center that starts to explore these other agencies, such as the State Department, Legislative, to start informing our airmen of how these other departments operate, just to build a lot of the leadership stuff you were talking at. So a lot of that becomes an education piece and a policy piece. And I think that's the best way for us to take uh, the charge that you've given us. So uh, I wanna thank everything, everybody for being here. Thank you for the writers. It was fascinating to be able to read all of that and uh, to learn from you. They will be published in Wild Blue Yonder, which is the Air University's online journal. And then the whole collection of essays, I think think there's 15 of them all together that were at the level where we could publish them. Uh, We'll be publishing a collection known as the LeMay Papers from Air University. We should see that in the late fall. And the intent is to always publish a collection of all the essays for every one of these. The next one is expected in uh, in late fall. And I hope the the three writers we have here, as well as the writers we had last time, will participate again and uh, build on the ideas you have. Again, thank you guys for being here. That's going to do it for this week's Doctrine podcast. Special thanks to MGM Works, LeMay Center, and Air University, and to all the writers that participated in the IDI contest. As a reminder, the views expressed by the host and by the individual writers do not necessarily reflect the reviews of LeMay Center, Air University, or any DOD agency. I'm Nicholas Unwood. We will see you next time.